Okay, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're continuing our study in the book of 2 Peter. So please turn with me there to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at the latter half of chapter 2. And uh, I've entitled the message this morning, Unrestrained Evil Leads to Bondage, Not Liberty. Unrestrained Evil Leads to Bondage, Not Liberty. <clears throat> As we mentioned last week, um, all of chapter 2 of Second Peter and part of chapter 3 is devoted to this exposure by Peter uh, and rebuking of these false teachers that were troubling the church. And Peter does not mince words, uh, but vigorously denounces <clears throat> excuse me, these wolves in sheep's clothing who have snuck into the church really to spread what he calls destructive heresies. <clears throat> and frankly, as you probably already have seen, it doesn't make for a pleasant read. Uh, but it is inspired scripture, okay? God put it here for a purpose, and therefore we need to appreciate the fact that even though it's maybe difficult uh, in the wording that's used, it's important for us to know it and to apply it to our present time. In fact, as I think I mentioned last time, Peter Lethart mentioned that this is probably some of the harshest rhetoric in the New Testament regarding rebuking those who are teaching uh, false doctrine. So that gives you a sense of how, even as I approach studying it, it's not you know a pleasant little study, it's, there's a challenge here to look at this and to go through it and see how important it is that we're warned against false teaching. <clears throat> and so we too need to be bold to speak out uh, against error and blatant false doctrine that uh, come up before us, and we need to be less concerned about being politically correct, which is kind of the mantra of today. You know, we have to be politically correct. You can't offend anybody. You can't say, if you say the truth, uh, if it's you know, you can't say the truth without being accused of being hurtful, you know, with your language, which is a sad testimony of where our world is today, that if you say something that is true, if it's offensive to the person that uh, you're saying it to, uh, you're considered to be a bigot or some sort of hateful person. Uh, so the truth has fallen in the streets. That's a classic uh, text from Isaiah 59. Truth has fallen in the street and no one's there to pick it up except the Lord. He will pick up his truth. He will hold it up. And so we need to have that sense of we can't let the society and their standards intimidate us. We need to stand for the truth, defend the truth, and speak out against falseness and warn against false teachers. As Peter reminded us, Old Testament Israel was plagued with false prophets. I mean, you read all the through the uh, Old Testament, there's that constant false prophet and God warning against them, God uh, bringing you know, uh, condemnation against them. <clears throat> and New Testament church, unfortunately, was faced with false teachers as well, inspired by Satan, of course, to sow discord amongst the brethren. And so we need to be on guard against them and study the word. Okay, what is our answer? We study the word to show ourselves approved. We study the word to both be able to quickly recognize false teaching when we hear it and to refute it. Okay, and that's, that's important. That's, again, I'm going to repeat it again. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that we're here to study sound doctrine Brian's teaching over the last few years on the doctrines that are set forth clearly in the 1689 Confession, which are a summary of the doctrines of Scripture. We need to know those so that when we are confronted with false teaching, we can say, ah, wait, that's not according to the Scripture, and we can refute that. So that's very important that we have this down. I know sometimes we can think of doctrine as being you know, dull or not exciting, whatever, but it's important that we know the truth so that we can refute error. So that's important in this study today as well. 
So as we noted that phrase, uh, by the way, this is where there's some of those challenging phrases here. The phrase there in the, in the first half of the chapter where Peter says, even denying the Lord that bought them. And some people take that as saying, oh, that means you can lose your salvation. But it's not an indication that Christ has already paid for their sins and yet they're falling away. Rather, from the context, what we're seeing here is that these false teachers have snuck into the church. That's what Peter's saying. They haven't just come in, you know, boldly declaring their errors. No, they've snuck into the church pretending to be believers, pretending to have been bought by Christ, presenting this false picture of being genuine in their faith. And therefore, you can say, well, they, they must be believers. They must have been trusting in Christ for their salvation. No, the Lord didn't really buy them. They, they gave the impression they've been bought by the blood of Christ because they're teaching, in their teaching, they're teaching that Christ is not the sovereign Lord. He's not the, the Lord over all things. And it is their denial of Christ's lordship overall that shows that they never really were his to begin with, but only pretended that they might get into the church and begin sowing their false doctrine. So that's where we have to be careful <clears throat> of subtle um, deceit that comes in. Someone comes in seeming to be very pleasant and, and loving and uh, godly and uh, loving the scripture, and yet once they're in, they began sowing discord and lies and falsehoods or, or um, fighting against sound doctrine. That's the type of thing we have to be careful of. And that's what Peter's preaching about here, these who are pretending to know the truth when they really don't because they show it by their denial of Christ's lordship. So we see also what Peter gave proofs of God's certain judgment on those. Okay? He's saying, here's what happened in the past when these type of people sowed their discord. And he gave us these examples. In doing so, he used these lessons to show how God preserves and protects his own. God's not indifferent. God's not up there looking the other way while these things are happening. No, God will protect and preserve us if we stick to his word and his truth. And he will guide us by his spirit to stand against these things. In fact, if you look really closely at the first half of chapter 2 here, you'll see that verses 4 through 8 are kind of one long if statement. If this is happening. And then he follows up in verses 9 and 10 with, then this is going to happen. So that's kind of the format we can see in the text. It's an if statement, and then this will happen. So Peter's first example, if you recall, was of the fallen angels who sinned against God. And what they did, we're not told. We're not given an exact uh, text of what the angels did to cause them to be thrown out. But Peter's point is that even if angels who are standing in the presence of God are cast into hell when they rebel... How much more sure will his wrath be upon these false teachers who are troubling the body of Christ? Okay, If he's going to throw angels out, he's certainly going to throw out or judge these false teachers. So we need to be, have that sense that God is, is overall, and he will deal justly with them. We just need to be on guard against them. The second example was, of course, that of the flood. And in that, he contrasted God's judgment on the ungodly with his mercy on Noah, whom he called a preacher of righteousness. So again, as we're going through this text and the judgments he's pronouncing and the warnings he's giving to us about these false teachers, we'll see that kind of contrast between sure judgment on these wicked, but also God's blessing on the righteous, God's protection of the righteous. And that's a comfort to us. Uh, certainly, we want to be uh, aware of false teachers and we want to be strong against them. But we also want to know that comfort that God's watching over us. God is, is protecting us. He's sent his spirit to nourish us and feed us in the truth. He's given us preachers and teachers of the word to help us to stay strong. So even in, in the midst of this harsh rhetoric against those who are our faults, we can find also words of comfort from Peter that says, God's in control. He will protect his church. He will bless it. But we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard. 
So, in fact, you might recall that I was thinking of that text when we, we talk about Noah and where we focus more sometimes on Noah and his family and the, the, the amazing nature of the ark and the protection over all those days he was in the ark and the fact that he is a preacher of righteousness. Yet you may recall that God described the wicked people of the earth at that time prior to the flood as those who every intent of their thoughts and their hearts were continual, continually evil, self-indulgence, sexual immorality, and rebellion against authority of his, uh, were, were all the pattern of their lives back then. And is it any different today? We think about society today, sexual immorality, uh, uh, rebellion against authority, self-indulgence, that pretty much describes our society today. So unfortunately, in spite of all God's warnings, in spite of all the, the truth that's been brought forth, we're still in the same boat, in a sense, using that term boat. We're still outside the boat, I guess you might say, of God's grace, uh, because we've not learned from God's uh, rebuke over the years. Noah was moved with godly fear. And so we need to be moved with godly fear to stand against truth. He trusted God, he obeyed God, and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith, we're told in Hebrews 11.7. So we need to trust God, even in the midst of chaos around us, even in the midst of total uh, rebellion against God. We need to stand firm. We need to be the light in the midst of darkness. So that's one of the things that's coming out of this teaching here. Again, Peter's very clearly and distinctly warning against these false teachers, but also in the midst of that, he's admonishing us to trust God, to lean upon the Lord, to let him direct our path, and to be sure that we're not falling into this error as well. <clears throat> so even today, if you are to stand before God, you must have that righteousness, which is not your own. Of course, we not, it's not our own but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, Peter's last example of God's sure judgment on the wicked was that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that example, we all, he also used it to demonstrate God's mercy in rescuing the righteous from that very judgment. So if God were to judge this nation, for instance, because of how far we've gone down the path of wickedness, uh, we would trust that he would, in his mercy, would preserve his church, would protect his church, and will allow us to continue to minister his word. But, you know, we look at what happened back then, uh, what would be different now considering how bad our nation has become, especially in the area of sexual sins. And sadly, you know, we look at Lot as an example. He gives us an example of someone who, by faith, believed in God, like his uncle Abraham, but his life was not marked. It was not marked by a biblical worldview, as we would call it, and he and his family suffered greatly. So we, we have to be on guard. Uh, you know, Peter concludes uh, his, his statement there of Lot by mentioning three times in a few verses that Lot was a righteous man. Now, we look at the story of Lot when we look back in the Old Testament, uh, and we think, boy, he wasn't righteous. You know, he looked very unrighteous in that situation. Yet, apparently, based on Peter's testimony, and he's guided by the Holy Spirit, Lot was righteous, but he's let, it, let his guard down. He was more maybe a concerned about uh, fitting in with the world than he was being distinctive for the Lord. Therefore, he made no impact. He was not a preacher of righteousness, at least we're not told that, as Noah was. Uh, he was one who kind of gave in to the world, and therefore it resulted in a disaster for his family. So that's a warning for us, that we would not follow in his footsteps. But again, basically Peter's point is God's in control. He will judge the wicked. He will bless the righteous. We need to have that, that peace and assurance that he is in control. And he wants to assure, Peter wants to assure these saints in Asia Minor that that's the case, that they are enduring 
not only persecution, but assaults by these false teachers, as, and that God can and will deliver his saints if they look to him, if they seek to fulfill his will. So as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you desire to live for God, if you're true to his word, if you stand up against false teaching, you're going to be persecuted, if not physically, at least verbally. And we're seeing that, of course, in, even in today in our social media, where if you speak the truth, oftentimes you're shut out of that social media. <clears throat> so that's something that is pretty obvious. But it's also true, as the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 5, back when we studied that a few weeks back, 1 Peter chapter 5 says, The God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's the comfort in knowing that after you've gone through these trials, and you look back through history, the trials that the church has endured, he still brought the church through. We're still here today. The church didn't disappear after the, you know, the, the first few centuries when things were going badly, or during the persecution of the, of the covenanters, or the persecution of the Huguenots, or others. The church persevered because God preserved it. And we can have that comfort, but we do need to be on guard. We need to be strengthened in the word of God to study, stand against these false teachers. So as we study, <coughs> excuse me, the latter half here of chapter 2, Peter's going to reveal more of the ungodly character of these false leaders or teachers uh, to leave no doubt in his readers' minds or ours that these teachers are to be totally avoided. We're not to tolerate them. We're not to make excuses for them. We're not to kind of get along with them. No, we're to stand up against them and say, no, you're not going to teach that here. No, you're not going to be sowing that discord amongst our churches. So let's begin by looking at the first few verses here of chapter 2, beginning at verse 10b. If you recall, we kind of cut off the text there at 10b because in the Greek, uh, 10a, the first half of verse 10, is the end of the paragraph. And then it begins another paragraph, which is the second half of, of verse 10 there. But we'll call it rebellion has its reward. Rebellion has its reward, and that reward is judgment. So, as humility and submission should be the most prominent character, quality of believers, so pride and defiance mark the character of these false teachers. So, let's read verse 10b through 13a. Okay, we're going to one half of a verse to another half of a verse, but that's what the context will help us look at as we go through this. So, 10b is, begins with the word they. They are presumptuous, self-willed. <clears throat> they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries or glorious ones, would be a better translation there. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. We'll stop right there at that word, daytime. Excuse me. So Peter calls these uh, false teachers presumptuous and self-willed. They think very highly of their own opinion and are determined to get their own way. And we need to be aware, beloved, of teachers who make rash statements or are arrogant in their mannerisms and in their speech. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Be careful of those who think they are wise in their own eyes, who think very highly of their opinion and aren't afraid to tell you that, that their opinion is very important. 
There's another verse similar to that in Proverbs 21:24. We won't read it right now, but you can look that up, Proverbs 21:24. Now, Peter also says that these teachers are not afraid to revile or speak evil of what is called dignitaries in the text. The Greek word there is doxa, and it literally means glorious or honorable one. In the context, one would think that uh, it means uh, government dignitaries or perhaps leaders in the church. But the parallel passage in Jude uh, verses 8 and 9 would appear that these dignitaries are actually angels. Let me read you the text from Jude verse 8 and 9. Jude says, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. There's that word again, glorious ones. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against them a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So the question is, what kind of angels are they speaking evil of? Again, it's very important we look at the context, and in this case, the parallel passage here in Jude. The idea that these false teachers are speaking of evil, church lead, evil of church leaders or even of some government leaders sounds plausible. It's, it's, it's possible. But it doesn't make sense when we look at verse 11 of our text or Jude 8 and 9. Rather, it would appear, and most commentators agree, that these false teachers are actually mocking Satan and his angels as though they, the teachers, were superior to them. Like, we don't care about Satan and his angels. We're so holy. We're so wonderful that he's not going to bother us. We're over them in that sense. There's that pride in that we're even better than Satan and his angels or his demons. So there's that, that sense of audaciousness. They show how, how proud they are by saying, you know, Satan and his angels, they don't bother us. We're, more, we're superior to them. So whereas in verse 11 and Jude 9 tells us even good angels, even Michael the archangel, do not revile Satan and his followers but leave the matter of rebuking and judging to God, these guys say, well, you know, we can rebuke angels. We can rebuke Satan. We're, we're really up on top of everything. James chapter 4 tells us to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We cannot defeat Satan on our own. We must leave him in God's hands and put ourselves under God's protection, and he will flee, Satan will flee, from the power of God in us, not our own strength. So there's the important thing. We don't attempt to duke it out with Satan. We don't suppose ourselves, because we're Christians, we're more powerful than Satan. No, we're not. But God is. Obviously, Satan's under God's hand, and therefore we submit ourselves to God, and then we can have the strength to resist Satan, and God will rebuke him. So that's Peter's contrasting that with these um, false teachers who are saying, well, we're more powerful than Satan. He's no big deal. You know, we can overcome him. That's the lie they're spreading. Again, this is false spirituality, this false sense of, of uh, power and, and uh, wisdom that they're presenting in order for get people to think highly of them and to follow them. Now, as Peter goes on to explain here in verses 13, 12 and 13, these false teachers will not submit to or respect anyone, but they're like animals with no rational thinking at all, any power at all. Instead of having spiritual knowledge, they possess only natural instincts, which makes them like wild beasts that can be captured and killed. That's kind of the impression he's giving here. They're just like wild animals. They think nothing of, of authority. They think they're over everybody. They're more powerful than everybody, and therefore everyone has to submit to their leadership. But he says that's not, you know, that's not what we should be doing. In fact, Simon Kistemacher in his commentary says, Peter uses this illustration to imply that man was not born to be captured and killed, but rather to live in freedom 
with spiritual knowledge and full reliance upon God. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live in the freedom of Christ's uh, salvation and to live with the knowledge of God and in submission to God, not lording ourselves over everyone as though we're in control. We don't need God at all. In fact, we note uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the, the text that um, Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, that he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. These false teachers are sowing corruption. They're going to perish in their corruption, and they're going to face the wrath of God. That's what Peter's trying to point out here. We note the phrase in verse 13, and shall receive the reward, literally the wages of unrighteousness. It reminds me of Paul's powerful and somber statement there in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. They think by their pride and their arrogance that their wages are glory and, and praise and honor of men, but their actual wages are going to be judgment from God. As the saying goes, a man reaps what he sows, and these men are sowing pride and arrogance, and they're going to reap judgment on them from God. These false teachers, instead of enriching themselves, uh, instead, of, uh, instead of enriching themselves, will instead bring not only spiritual poverty, but God's wrath upon them uh, themselves. We need to avoid those type of people, beloved. Not associate with them, not envy them, but rather pity them, really, and pray for them that God would bring them to repentance. As if to emphasize their corruption, Peter says in verse 13a that these heretics, unlike the pagans who did their evil under the cover of darkness, are in a sense ashamed of what they're doing, these have no shame. While they pretend to be teachers of truth, they behave arrogantly and immorality, immorally in the day. So that's the kind of picture he wants to present here, that don't look on these teachers in any way of, of favoring them or thinking they're okay. No, hold them at arm's length. Keep them away from you. Don't, don't pretend that they're okay. Don't go along with their lies, but speak out against them. Rebuke them. Stand for the truth. And don't allow them into your church either. And so we'll move on to the next section here of, of the text, which is uh, verse 13b through verse 17. And this, we get this pretending to love. These teachers are pretending to love, but they're driven by lust. They pretend to be loving. They pretend to be driven by love, but they're really driven by lust. Peter is continuing his bold and harsh rebuke here of these false teachers. And again, he's going to use an Old Testament example by comparison. So let's read verse 13b through verse 17 to see what he has to say. <clears throat> 13b. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." <clears throat> He calls them spots and blemishes. This is in direct contrast to Christ and his church. In 1 Peter 1.19, we are told that Christ is like a lamb without blemish and without spot. And in Ephesians 5.27, Paul tells us that Christ gave himself for the church that he might sanctify her and present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Christ and his church, because of Christ, are holy and without blemish. They're pure without blemish. But these men, these teachers, are full of blemishes. They're full of spots and blemishes. They're spreading lies and deceit, and they are they're contrary to God's will in all that they're doing. We note that he says that they, in essence, revel in their own deceptions while they feast with you. The parallel passage uh, in Luke and Jude, I'm sorry, verse 12, speaks of these feasts as love feasts. Well, what are they speaking of here? Well, they're probably gatherings by Christians where they both shared a meal and also served the Lord's Supper, similar to our first Sundays of the month where we have a a service and then we have uh, the Lord's Supper and a meal. So a similar uh, format there. But it seems that... um, that what's happening here, that Peter's words and Jude's, are that these heretics are, are, are sneaking in, so to speak. They're not coming in uh, quietly or, I mean, boldly and, and rashly and saying, here I am, you know, I'm going to spread this truth. But they come into these feasts kind of, you know, subtly. Their delight, but their delight is not only in spreading their false teaching, but as it says here in the text, they delight in shameless acts to satisfy their desires. It's not enough for them just to sneak in and be part of the crowd and kind of be accepted. No, they're actually going to go beyond that to the point of actually sowing discord and, and doing shameless things that create uh, discord, create problems in the, in, the, uh, in the congregation. And Peter describes these shameless acts in verse 14. He literally, in the Greek, says that their eyes were full of an adulteress. That's what the Greek is saying there. Their eyes are full of an adulteress. In other words, they desire every woman that they saw and they hope to seduce her. When they come into these love feasts, they're hoping to take advantage of any woman they saw and to satisfy their own sexual lusts. They were driven by their lusts, and they never stop sinning. Even worse, they try to ensnare those, as he says, who were weak in the faith into these sexual sins. Peter uses a metaphor here about fishing when he says they attempt to lure or ensnare all those who are weak and perhaps young in their faith. This is why it's important to study the word and be grounded in God's truth so you might not be easily led astray. God gives teachers to the church to edify and build up the saints that they might not be tossed about by false teaching. And let's go back to a text which should be familiar. We, we study it during our study of uh, spiritual gifts. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a reminder of what God wants the church to do, and why God gives teachers to the church, and what's the result of that. This is an exact contrast to what these false teachers are doing. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 15, or 16, we'll read through 16, I guess. Verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's a key point. That's what teachers are supposed to do, edify, not tear down the faith. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. Here we have, this is what these guys are doing. They're using trickery to get the people to follow them and then eventually lead them astray from the truth. In the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That's what they're doing. They're very crafty. They're not, you know, blatant. They come in sneaking into these love feasts, making themselves appear very godly and loving, but their crafty plotting is to lead people astray. But, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's what's supposed to be going on in the church. That's the goal of these officers and leaders that God has put into the church to build up the church, to edify it. In contrast to that, we have these false teachers who sneak in, give, give the impression of being a blessing and a, and a help, but their goal is to sow discord and to bring people into submission to their will, to get people to exalt them, not Christ. And they deny the lordship of Christ. They look at themselves as being more superior. Even They can even fight angels. You know, they can defeat Satan. So that's the contrast that Peter's trying to give here, the picture of how these people are leading so, people, so many people astray. And he points out the, the greed of these, uh, in, in, uh, in the text here, he points out the greed of these heretics. And we need to be careful, beloved, of those who are covetous, who care for more power uh, and money than your own soul, who are looking to get exaltation for themselves, who are looking for applause for themselves. Peter says at the end of verse 14 that they are cursed children. They're cursed children. Woe unto them that fall into that category. Woe unto them that have that label put upon them because of their deceit and because of their wickedness, what they're doing to the church of God. They're cursed children. They're sure to feel God's wrath ultimately. In verses 15 and 16 of our text back there in 2 Peter, he turns his, to his pattern of referring to the Old Testament as an example to his readers. And it's because of this style that one would think probably this particular group of people he's writing to in Asia Minor would be mostly Jewish because Gentiles would not be familiar with these Old Testament references. So that's a, just a sidebar there that's quite likely that most of these congregations he's writing to would be Jewish in their background. In this case, he's referring, of course, to the story of Balaam, which is a good example of an Old Testament false prophet, okay? Basically a prophet for hire, as we're told in Numbers chapter 22 and through verse chapter 24. And though Balaam feigned to be God's spokesman, he would only do what God said, uh, if, of course, he was forced to do it, if God, the Spirit, kept him from saying, uh, bringing judgment upon Israel. Instead, he was, in a sense, forced by the Spirit to bring blessings upon them. Uh, his heart was greedy, though. Uh, he was greedy, and thus Peter defines him as one who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He wanted to curse Israel uh, and be paid for it, but the Spirit of God forced him to bless God's people instead. But ultimately... Uh, though Balaam lured the people, we're told in the text there that Balaam lured the people of Israel into immorality with the Moabites, thus bringing God's curse upon them because of that. These New Testament false prophets or teachers are following in Balaam's footsteps, luring God's people not only with false teaching but into sexual immorality as well. We note Peter's words here at the beginning of verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. The right way in the Old Testament is an Old Testament metaphor for obedience to God. And we see that if you want to see a couple of references, Psalm 27, verse 11, and 107, verse 7. That's Psalm 27, 11, and Psalm 107, verse 7. In fact, the Greek word used here means level or straight way. These false teachers may have started out on the straight way in order to deceive people, or at least pretending they were, but they quickly went off of it. And we see, in fact, Paul's rebuke of Limus. You might remember Limus the sorcerer in Acts chapter 13, verse 10. Same thing happened. He started out looking as though he was you know, going to follow God, going to follow Christ. But ultimately, he was driven by greed, by saying, oh, if I have this power, I can be rich. You know? Give me that. 
You know, he's asking the apostles to give him this, this gift of, of uh, giving the Holy Spirit to people. So he really uh, manifested just how weak a believer he was, if one at all, by his greed, by his desire to gain power and authority over people. And that's what Peter's warning against here. This is what these people are like. Be careful. Be careful of these people because they're going to lead you astray. In fact, we as God's people are to find our delight in the straight path that God leads us in that path, that path of life. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, narrow is the gate and difficult or straight, there's that word, straight is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. And that's because only by God's grace will they find it. And finally here in this section, uh, verse 17, Peter uses two poetic figures that describe the barrenness of these false teachers and their ultimate end. First, he refers to them as wells without water. Water is a precious commodity in the Middle East at that time and probably still is now. Imagine the disappointment of a thirsty traveler coming to a well and finding it dry. Such are these heretics. They pretend to have spiritual refreshment for the Christian community, but they're like dry wells, dry wells with nothing to satisfy one's spiritual thirst. In contrast, we think of the graciousness of our God who says in Isaiah 44 and verse 3, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit out upon your seed and my blessing upon your offspring. God brings refreshing waters of grace. He doesn't leave us thirsting because of the falseness of, our teach, of the teaching. A true servant of God is but a spiritual water carrier for the Lord who brings refreshing truths from God to his people. So I appreciate you prayer for, pray for Brant and for Brian and myself and all those who teach God's word that we might be refreshing fountains, not dry wells to the sheep of God's pasture. That's important. You pray for us that we would bring refreshment to your soul, not dryness, not, uh, I'm trying to think of the term, but uh, anyway, just bring refreshment and not leave you thirsting for more because we didn't give you anything at all. Peter's second example of the character of these heretics is pretty similar to the first. He says they are clouds carried by a tempest. Clouds carried by a tempest. And again, we think of the disappointment of people in a dry land who see clouds coming. They hope for rain. But instead, a storm pushes the clouds past or the wind pushes the clouds past and no rain falls. So as one author put it, the heretics cause excitement in the community when they come in. They, they show themselves to be very uh, you know, outgoing and, and excited about things. They, they bring excitement, but after nothing, uh, after they offer nothing that is substantial and worthwhile. Once they're gone, there's nothing there. There's no life at all. Peter concludes his comparison with a somber description of the fate of these heretics. We know that God is light, 1 John 1, 5, but the opposite of light is absolute darkness. And these false teachers already walk in darkness and their future is the blackness of darkness. In other words, their future is hell. There's similar, there's similar wording in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, regarding these, the fate of these angels. <clears throat> Let's finish up here uh, in this particular portion of the text in verses 18 through 22. We're going to look at what's false liberty, which leads to inevitable doom. They offer a false liberty, but the liberty they are offering us will lead not to joy and blessing, but they'll lead to doom. Peter concludes this chapter here by exposing the nature of these heretics' teaching and their ultimate return to who they really are and the consequences of following them. Let's read verses 18 and 19 to begin with. 
For while, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. <clears throat> First, he says they are boastful, yet their words are empty, they're worthless. Beware, beloved, of the charismatic TV and radio preachers who boast of how God has blessed their ministry uh, or how they have a special revelation from God that you haven't heard before. They may use high-sounding words. They may even throw uh, some Greek words in there or Hebrew words in there to make them sound official. Yet they often contradict the plain teaching of God's word with their own theories and schemes. In truth, they use poor scholarship. They rely on speculation and their own vain imagination. That's, again, the importance of us knowing the word, studying the word, so we can easily see right away what's wrong with that teaching, why there's something wrong with it. Sadly, they appeal to the lust of the flesh, to these new converts, Peter is saying, and to those who are, uh, are looking for the truth and they need guidance, who have maybe not developed a strong spiritual resistance to their old pagan desires. So he's saying we, these people are, are very subtle, and deceitful, and they look for weak Christians, maybe new Christians, that they can lead them astray. In fact, it's very similar to what was said in verse 14, and in, Luke, in Jude, verse 16, these heretics are like wolves. They feed upon the weak members of the flock. They look for those who are not sure what they believe yet, or are just growing, and maybe just became a believer, and they seek to draw them away and lead them down a dark path. As verse 19 tells us, these heretics promise liberty. They promise liberty and freedom, to these new believers or those seeking to escape from the trials of life, but they themselves are bound up in their own corruption and therefore they can't help others. They're bound in their sin. As John MacArthur put it, bondage to corruption awaits all followers of false teachers. If you follow a false teacher, you're going to end up being bound in their own corruptions. You're going to be led astray from the truth. These false teachers fulfill their promises of, uh, cannot fulfill their promises of freedom when they themselves are enslaved by sin. John 8, verse 14, verse, I'm sorry, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And that's what these men are. They're slaves of sin, and they're trying to drag, drag others into their slavery of sin. In fact, their freedom is what we call antinomian freedom. Freedom from law or any kind of authority. They think, oh yeah, we got freedom, but they don't, their freedom is totally uh, contrary to God's law, totally contrary to God's authority at all. They are anarchists who want no holds or no restrictions on their perversity and their lust. And we need to steer far clear of such teachers, beloved, for they will lead you only into a state of bondage and a state of shame. So that's the, the intensity of this warning. We think, oh, I'd never fall for that. Uh, well, maybe you won't, especially if you're spending time in the Word. But there are those who are weak in the faith or new to the faith that could be led astray by this charismatic teacher who promised them all kinds of things. And we need to be sure that we are encouraging uh, each other in the Word especially with our children, teaching them the word, teaching them the principles of the word, that they would be able to recognize right away when a false teacher tells them something that's not in that word. So again, that's the, the constant reminder here, to be in the word, to be strong in the truth, so that you're not led astray by these false teaching. Now, Peter now concludes this chapter with some solemn words of condemnation for these false teachers. Basically, as an explanation of his words in verse 19, where he calls them slaves of corruption, let's read verses 20 uh, through 22. Verse 24, if, 
after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. In other words, they ultimately return to their true color. Now, some question who Peter is speaking about here in verse 20, the false teachers or those whom they have lured away from the faith. And again, it's important to look at the context here. In this case, the theme of the chapter, Peter has been thumping on and denouncing false teachers throughout this chapter, so it's most likely he would not, wouldn't change his theme here in the last few verses. But it's true, though, that some people might be drawn to the Christian faith for reasons other than the genuine work of the Spirit, and thus they could be lured away from it again by false teachers who promise them peace. They promise them peace while playing on their lust. And even these false teachers may have been drawn to the moral decline, drawn away from the moral decline of the world around them, hoping to find a, maybe a better life or, or a life that's more peaceful, or perhaps they were impressed by the genuine joy of believers and the, the, the blessings of fellowship and the integrity of, of Christians. Um, but that they have met, but in any case, they profess, their professed knowledge of the Lord was just that, a head knowledge. It led them out of their ungodly lifestyles for a season and into Christian circles, but their inner depravity soon led them to try and take advantage of the Christian's love and kindness. Their false profession could not keep them from returning to their sinful lusts. And in order to feel good about themselves or to not feel like they're outcasts, they try and drag others down with them. Turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 43 through verse 45, Matthew chapter 12. This is Jesus' warning here. Matthew 12, 43, and when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. This is similar to what these, uh, these, these false teachers are like, in that they, maybe they, they come into Christian circles and they appear to be godly. They appear to have you know, cast the evil out of their, their lives. And so they're, they're thinking, oh, we're, we're okay. But look what happens. <clears throat> then he goes, and he takes with him seven other evil spirits more wicked than themselves, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. People who come into the church feigning to be godly or thinking that all is well or this is a good place to be yet aren't really born again and are driven by their own desires soon find themselves being discontented with things and wanting to get back into their old lifestyle but in order to feel comfortable or in order to not be so objectively evil they draw other people with them try and draw other people out of the church to be part of their circle to make them feel comfortable in their wickedness. So that's what we need to be careful of, be warned against. Remember, Judas knew Jesus really well, wasn't he? He, he? he walked with Jesus for several years and would seem to be a part of the group, yet he ended up betraying him. So we need to be careful of those kind of people who come in and seem to be followers of Christ. And yet, ultimately, they began sowing discord, they began spreading lies, they began to luring Christians off into sins, which we shouldn't be a part of. So Peter concludes that they would have been better off not knowing the truth and unintentionally, uh, and unintentionally sinning than to know it and deliberately sin against God. 
In this, we see the giving them over of Romans chapter 1, in which God withdraws his common grace from people and allows them to be as wicked as they can be. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 28, speaks this way, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and the fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. These, these false teachers, if they once give the impression of knowing Christ or they give the impression of being believers, and yet they ultimately fall away, they end up sinning willfully after they have the knowledge of the truth, then fiery judgment is awaiting them. In fact, if you look in the next few verses of that chapter of Hebrews chapter 10, it reconfirms that. So as a summary of his description of these false teachers, Peter uses two Proverbs. First one is from Proverbs 26, verse 11. Basically, the Jews treated dogs with contempt, unlike us. <laughs> they were considered unclean. They were considered scavengers who lived on refuse of all kinds, including their own vomit. Thus, Peter compares these false teachers who returned to their living in unrestrained sin as dogs. The second proverb is not biblical, but a common one found in many uh, manuscripts. The principle is the same. If you wash a sow or a pig, it will return to wallowing in the mire again. You'll just do that. You can clean up a pig and make it look as nice as possible. You can take a pig to 4-H and display it, and everybody will say, wow, what a beautiful pig. But you take that pig back home, put him in his pen, and it's a hot day, he's going for the mud. You know, Believe me, I've been there, done that, we've seen it in action. You know, They love to get into the mud because of the nature of their skin. And when it gets hot, they need to cover up. Okay? They don't have a lot of hair on them, and so they can get cooked in the heat really quick. So that's one of the things they do. They go for the mud to cover themselves with mud to keep cool. So he's using that, uh, I guess you might say, cultural proverb to rebuke these false teachers. <clears throat> Excuse me. These false teachers return to wallow in their reverie and their immorality after initially escaping it when they pretend to follow Christ. Jesus speaks of both animals, in fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, when he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and tear you in pieces. So there's a double warning there against these. And Peter's obviously remembering that statement of Christ, and he's using those truths to warn us against these false teachers who appear to be a blessing, but ultimately they're like dogs and pigs. They return to their evil deeds. So just to conclude here this morning, Peter's written this chapter to warn believers against the lies of these false teachers who defy Christ's lordship and who pursue immorality. It'd be, it'd be one thing if they just, you know, uh, defied Christ's lordship and, but kind of wanted to live their own way and do their own thing, but they avoided sin. They were aesthetic, in other words, they, like monks living in, a, in a, a monkery. But that's not the case. Not only do they defy Christ's lordship, but they are diving back into the sin of which they uh, were a part of before. It, it shows that, they really had, that this, their association with Christianity had no impact on their ultimate character. They went back to their ultimate character because they were sinners lost in their sin. Using another example from history in the Old Testament, he, uh, Peter com compares their character and their destiny to the false prophets like Balaam. And therefore, we should take that warning seriously. What happened? What did Balaam do? He led Israel astray. Even if, as God initially restrained him and caused him by the Spirit to bless Israel, ultimately, once that Spirit was removed from him, he turned back to what he was, which was a deceiver and an immoral man who led Israel into immorality with the Moabites. These people boast of bringing new truth to the flock, but they are like dry wells 
and empty clouds. They leave everyone thirsty for the truth. We're to be on guard against them and test the spirits to see they are of God, which we're told in 1 John 4.1. Anchor your hearts, beloved, in Christ and his work and study the word. Study the show yourselves approved. Workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be armed against the false teachers. May the Lord deliver us from heretics and lead us in holiness and in truth. Uh, just one last thing. I happened to come across this last night when I was studying. This is a quote from Art J.C. Ryle. There's a widespread ignorance among professing Christians. Every heretic who speaks well is surely believed, and anyone who doubts him is called narrow-minded and unloving. That's, and that was written by Ryle quite a while ago. But that's speaking to what it is today. If you come up and say something against a false teacher, oh, you're a bigot or you're, you know, you're prejudiced in some way. But unfortunately, that's becoming more and more true amongst professed Christians that when some guy brings some wonderful message, they say, oh, he's, he's got to be truthful. And if you say, no, that's a lie, that's contrary to the scripture, they'll call you a heretic. So we need to be careful that we are not professing, but we are possessing believers that know the truth, live for the truth. And as we live the truth, and study the truth, we can see this false teaching in our, before our eyes and rebuke it and stand against it. Let's pray.